Good to see you. Uh, for those of you I don't know, I am Dr. Brent Baskin. Uh, I just went to school a little bit longer than some of you. That's about the only reason I have the DR in front of my name. I chose to suffer. I don't know why, but I did. Uh, through that, God opened the door for us to come to Rome, and I teach youth ministry at Shorter University. Um, I was a youth minister before I moved here, and so God allows me to teach the next generation of ministers how to follow after God, pursue God first, and then let that be the overflow of their ministry. Um, what I would like to talk to you today is about Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're going to look at this passage together. For those of you that are adults in this room, you'll identify for you students. I'm going to get to you in just a second, so hold on tight. Uh, do you remember when, if for those of you that aren't married, do you remember your first place that you lived in when you got married? Ours was an apartment. Um, it was about 400 square feet. It had one bedroom. The thing I liked about it the most is I could clean the entire thing in about 15 minutes. It was wonderful. Uh, it had razor wire across the entire complex because this neighborhood where we lived was a little bit sketchy. And so in order to protect us, uh, it had razor wire. It was also right next to a Taco Bell Pizza Hut, which was awesome. Uh, so I could go get some Taco Bell and breadsticks at the same time. It was pretty cool. Uh, from there, we moved. Um, my first, we bought our first home. It was a whopping $45,000. We, we stretched ourselves, and for those of you that understand finance, we put it on a 30-year note because that's how much we got paid and could afford. Uh, we also got some help from our parents because our parents didn't want us to live in a rental in that area where we lived because, again, it didn't have razor wire, and it was still in a sketchy neighborhood. From there, we moved and moved to Texas, uh, and I got to live in a treehouse, is what they called it. It, it was a one-bedroom studio apartment above a garage that someone rented out to us as we started our next place of ministry, and that's where our oldest daughter found her first place of residence. Uh, we moved into a parsonage after that, uh, which was awesome, right? You think parsonage, big, right? Uh, it was 1,800 square feet. It had an incline. Because the foundation was so bad. Some of you will understand inclines. It had an 18-inch incline. You were walking uphill in the house the whole time. Uh, so it was great exercise. Got some great calf workouts. It was wonderful. Uh, we had skunks that lived under our house for a brief period of time. Then we got to move uh, to a little bit nicer rental property. We got out of the parsonage because there was potential of them selling it. So we moved to a little bit nicer rental property. And then God, by the, grace, by the grace of God, we're able to move to Rome and live in the home we are now. I tell you all that as an adult to think back to when it was like to first be married and the sacrifices that we made. How we, did, we struggled to get to where we are now. As a parent, I think about and am tempted to say to my children, I don't want you to go through the same struggles that I went through as I was starting out in life. So what are some things that we would possibly do? Well, we might buy them their first car. And heaven forbid we buy them a used car because that might break down on them. Let's buy them a brand new car. And we'll pick up the payments and take care of that for them. But you know what? I don't want them to live in the sketchy neighborhood I, am, I lived in. So let's make sure we get them in a nice apartment or a nice house. And I'll sacrifice so that they can be taken care of and provided for. The problem is, is that we're teaching our children 
safety, which isn't a bad thing, but we're not teaching them how to sacrifice and to build character by suffering. And then Deuteronomy chapter 6, God does the exact same thing with his people. He warns them, hey, caution here. I'm about to give you something really nice, but if you take the really nice and forget how we got here, you're going to completely miss it. And you're going to live a life that I did not intend for you to live. And so for my children, I don't want them to live a life that I, that I don't want them to live, which is it's easy. You can have whatever you want because you and I know as adults and most students have learned basic finance, you can't have whatever you want. It eventually comes back to someone has to pay for it. You will either pay for it by someone taking it back away from you, say for a car repossession because you can no longer make the payments. Maybe a foreclosure on a home because we can no longer make the payments. Or worst case scenario, maybe you've had to go through a bankruptcy because you can no longer afford to pay your bills, because we have chosen to live a life that we thought we could live, but we didn't go through the suffering in order to get there. So what I want to do is look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I want to look at it from a God perspective, because I think there's part of it where we live as Christians, and we forget how we got to where we are. And we just assume that because I'm a Christian, life just is grand. Life's good. I live in America, I have a nice place to live, I go to a great church, we have great facilities, wonderful ministries, great ministers. And God, yet in his word, is challenging us to say, hey, don't forget how you got here. So let me set the stage for you by, by giving you the great commandment, giving you some instructions, and then we'll get into the text of the passage. But we're going to start in verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, ho, hear O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So what God is saying, he's setting the stage saying the Lord our God is one. It's basically saying is there is one God. Or I am the number one God. No one competes with me. Because you have to remember in the context there were multiple gods available to them. And God was setting the stage to say, I am the number one God. It could also mean the idea that God is uniquely one. You and I know of and are aware of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So by being one, God could also be saying, I am very unique. And I am Yahweh. I am God. And in light of me being the number one God, and in light of me being uniquely one, love me. And by love, he's not saying love like you love your cheeseburgers, because I do love my cheeseburgers, right? Emotional. It's more than that. It is show me that you love me. It's like loving your spouse. Now, and I'll defer to Bob, uh, his sermon that he gave the students a couple of weeks ago. Go find his podcast. He did a great job covering this passage on love in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And encourage you to listen to that. But what he says is, I want you to love me with everything, heart, soul, and strength. Heart is the idea of a mind, or sorry, let me make sure I got that right. I'm getting uh, tied into the New Testament as well. Yeah, heart, soul, and might or strength. In the New Testament, Jesus has the word mind. Heart is mind and emotions in the Old Testament. It's like an emotional intelligence. And it's not so much here, it's right here. How do you think with your gut? What does your gut tell you? 
Maybe you've heard that, that phrase before. So God wants you to love him with all your thought process. God wants you to love him with all your soul, which is the idea of will. What is your desires? What do you want to do with your life? Are you willing to love him with everything of that? Strength, physical strength, physical resources. Are you loving him with all your physical resources? Are you giving him your all complete surrender to him? That's the challenge set before us in light of him being the number one God. And so Moses sets the stage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 saying, in light of this, this is what's most important. Then in 7 through 10, he says, teach this to your children. Or 7 through 9, he says, teach this to your children. This is a very important commandment. In fact, he uses the word impress, which means beat it into them. So you're welcome, parents. God's giving you free grace to do that. Kids, sorry, it's in God's word. What can I do? Beat it into their brain that they are to love their Lord your God with all their heart, soul, and strength. But then he gets to the warning and the caution that I want us to cover today. And it starts in verse 10. <clears throat> and he says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, as we're growing up, adversity brings about a sense of dependence. You're depending on willpower. You may be depending on God in the midst of a struggle. Maybe you've had a physical ailment and you've had to ask God to help heal you. But when you're healthy, we forget that God healed us. Or you're in a prosperity. Life's going well for you financially. And maybe we forget how we got there. That God put us through a storm of life and then therefore brought us out in great victory. And that's exactly what's going on here is they have just gone through the wilderness twice, roamed around. They've just, you remember, they, they know of a generation of Egypt that were brought out of slavery. And yet they're about to go into a land filled with milk and honey. And they're going to have all of it just handed to them. Great prosperity. And in the midst of that great prosperity is the temptation to completely forget the Lord. When things are going great, it's easy to turn and think about ourselves and how well we're doing and completely forget the Lord Almighty, the number one God. We are not God. We did not get there on our own. The Lord has shown his favor to us. And so the caution there is to not forget. Then he lists four things here that I want to point out uh, that he says that we need to watch out for. In verse 13, it says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. And then he goes into the cautions or the warnings. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, and he is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, 
and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. So caution number one or warning number one is not to pursue other gods. Because when prosperity comes, we let our guard down. Remember, adversity brings on dependence, pursuing, looking for help in our time of need. But prosperity leads, tends to lessen our guard. And so there's an opportunity here to look at what's on the horizon and to see what's available to us and what everybody else is doing. So obviously we don't pursue little wooden or little graven images anymore. Many of us have those on our mantle. But what if by definition the idol was anything or anyone that gets more time, more mind, more soul, or more strength than God? If the commandment of Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 is to love the Lord your God with all your soul, or all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, that is the commandment. If anything or anyone gets more time than that or more emphasis than God, then by definition it has then become an idol. So we have to be cautious of that. As parents, could it be our kids? Could they get more mind, more soul, more strength than the Lord? Does our academics for our students... Because of the high expectation that you need a full ride to go to college. Because we're not going to pay for all of it. Does it get more time? Does it get more heart, soul, and strength than the Lord? Does that car you've always wanted and you just dream about and you look at on Google all the time. Does it get that? For me, it's that body that I know I'll never have. (laughs) Does it get more energy? And time and effort, you bet you it does. Guilty. So anything that is put ahead of God is considered an idol. And God is warning us in the midst of our prosperity not to lose sight of who the Lord is. Then he goes on, the gods of the people around you. Meaning other people are going to be doing things that influence us. Remember, they're supposed to go into a promised land. It's already inhabited. And we know, based on the rest of the story in Joshua and Judges, they do not kill everybody. They let some people live, contrary to God's instructions. So the world's influences are in their midst. And so the lifestyles and the influences by which they live are sitting there. And we're looking at that and we're looking across the green grass of their side of life and saying, Hmm, I wonder what's going on over there. Do you remember the Buick commercial? They're sitting there in the kitchen and they're like, oh, the next door neighbor got a Buick. Wow. Most are like, Buick, really? But it's the idea of going, wow, look at what the neighbors are doing. They put in the new pool. Whoa, that'd be nice to be able to put in the pool. I can't afford the pool. I wonder how much money they're making. But it may not just be prosperity could also be the expectation or the expectation to conform or remain silent about certain convictions. The homosexual discussion that keeps coming up over and over and over again. Apparently there's some new Disney movie coming out. I don't know much about it, but that was a joke, by the way. You know, there's both sides of the argument. You know, are we going to go watch Beauty and the Beast or are we not going to go watch Beauty and the Beast? You know, are we going to just remain silent and conform to culture, or are we going to take a stand? 
But if you're going to take a stand there, are you going to take a stand somewhere else? Are you going to make it a big, huge public stand? Or are you just going to maintain a quiet stand? That's just one of many. Immigration. Are we going to love refugees or not love refugees? Are we going to let them in or are we going to let them out? Massively confusing topic. But are we going to let the cultural influences influence us and invade our life and help inform and influence our decision-making process? Or are we going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5? Are we going to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, and our, all our strength? And let Him and His ways and His commands and His rules and His statutes influence our lives. Let me bring it into the church. Conformity in hopes of reaching more people for Christ. Let's look at the world's influences and see. Because in the Old Testament, they did the same thing. Asherah poles, bell worship, all were within the context of the temple. The Asherah poles were in the temple. Fertility gods were in the temple. That would be weird. Fertility stuff going on in the church? What? That'd be gross. However... <clears throat> What cultural influences are we bringing into the church and saying, we'll accept these because we want to reach more people for Christ and we think it's okay? You know, we brought in those guitars and drums in the church. Oh, wait, sorry. Wrong service. That's the other service. We brought that organ into the church. Kidding. But what if we redefine discipleship? What if discipleship is no longer about taking what's in this book and learning it and applying it. But what if discipleship is about coming and meeting with a group of my friends that I know well and just finding emotional support to help me get through my week and calling that discipleship? That's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is to make disciples, followers of Christ, who go and make other disciples. That's discipleship. But yet, by conformity of trying to reach as many people as we can, we want to soften that, lighten it, make it easier to accept so that other people will come be involved in my group. Ministry. We sit, we come to church on Sunday and we go, man, we've met with Jesus today. That was awesome. We come back the next Sunday and say the same thing. But if discipleship is really about making disciples followers of Christ, then why have we handed all the ministry responsibilities over to professionals? How am I, why am I expecting Ryan to disciple my kid? That's not Ryan's job. Ryan's job is to help me disciple my kid. It's my job. God's word, seven through nine. Impress it upon your children. That's me, my role as a parent. Does that mean you have to be a PhD? No. You have to be a Christian. Great commission. All Christians are supposed to do that. Do you have to know everything about this book? Absolutely not. Just love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. The problem is, as we are just going through our warnings, is we're missing that. It's getting blurred in the midst of a cultural influence that says, don't worry about it. The other church has got a really cool hip youth minister that wears skinny jeans. Sorry, Ryan. Maybe we should get one like that. Why do we have to be like the culture? Why do we have to be like the world? Why can't we just be like, be in, a, in love with God as we have worshipped 
today. Because of cultural influences, because of a complete surrender, uh, or because we have handed over to professionals, ministry and discipleship have now been minimized. Surrender to the Lord has now been minimized to, to basically saying, if you like our club, come join it. Sign on a card, give us your membership fee, we call it a tithe, and that's all you have to do. That's not the gospel. The gospel is complete surrender, as we just sang a moment ago, to a man, fully God, fully human, who died on a cross for your sins and for mine. He gave everything for us. God did for you and for I. For me. Sorry, grammar people. So much more to this. Let's keep going. Verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him in Massa. We've become apathetic. They were whining in Exodus. God, we're out in the wilderness. This water's so bitter. Can we get some real water, please? Come on, God, serve us. Show us something. We turn the tides. We turn the tables on God. We are no longer serving God. God is serving us. There is a study out called the National Study of Youth and Religion. It's been out now for about 12 years. And basically what they are telling us on research is that this is, we, are, we have not changed since this time period. As far as apathetic, serve God serve us. Because what they're telling us is that most, not you guys, the teenagers in the room, but most teenagers only expect God to be available to them when they need him. They don't have an expectation of surrender. Um, they only are, God is only there to serve and meet their needs. Therapeutic, by definition. The, the, the official term is moralistic, therapeutic deism. You don't have to know that, but... What you need to be aware of is that if I live a good life and if I am happy, God loves me and will have a wonderful plan for my life and I'll go to heaven when I die. We're following these same warnings and we're buying into the same ideas that the Old Testament that God had warned these people about. We're doing the exact same thing and we're ending up with the same results. Is that the culture has now invaded our church, the attitude of lessening God is minimized. God is minimized. And because of that, we just say, if you come to church and are happy, then therefore you must be saved. Here's what the research also says. The research says it's the same faith that the parents have. The parents are the ones teaching the next generation how to believe that. So it's on us. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got to be men and women of the book. We've got to be men and women who love God. We have missed it. We have lost our focus. Because of that, we also are untrusting. Um, look at verse 19. It says, By thrusting out all your enemies before, from before you, as the Lord has promised. Because God has been minimized, I don't think we believe any of God's promises anymore. Except that salvation one. Because we want to go to heaven. So I'll ask Jesus to come into my heart and save me because I want to go to heaven. But what we're not doing is believing it. We're not doing a complete surrender. 
man in Luke asked God, what Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Complete surrender to me and to God. And you will be saved. But we've minimized it to just saying, confess, just say it. Sign the card, get in the water, and we're good. We missed it. I've missed it. The Lord is worthy of our worship. And because I have minimized this, I have lost focus of why I come to church and why I do life. It minimizes, he minimizes the impact of my decision-making and how I live. I've let idols, cultural influences, apathy, and not believing in the promises of God affect how I view God. If I want to have the Lord and love the Lord with all my heart, all my soul, my strength, I've got to renew my commitment to that mindset and that attitude. God has warned us of this and says you need to do that. But it's not just for me, it's for future generations. And here's what I love about this passage. Look at verse 20. It says, when, you, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded you? Let's just paraphrase that for a minute. You're sitting at the dining room table and your kids ask you, why are we doing this? God has just laid it out for you. If you want to follow after God and you want to start making decisions for your family or as a teenager, you just want to make decisions for your way of life. And your friends ask you, why are you doing this? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20, same thing. And then he lays it out for us. Here's their story and then I'll give you your story. In their story, verse 21, he says, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs of wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give us to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these things, these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might pers- uh, preserve us alive as we are today. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Do you see how much emphasis it was on God and his activity and his actions? It wasn't anything we did except follow him. Constant, constant, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Brent, why are you doing this? Why are you in Rome? Why are you choosing to follow after God? Because he has done great things in my life. And when I was 12, I found Jesus and knew that I needed a Savior because I saw my sin and where I was, and he saved me from it. And as I have continued to follow him, and although I'm not perfect at it, he has been faithful to me because he has commanded me to be faithful to him. And he has preserved my life. You become the living testimony of this book. But if we let everything around us influence our lives, then God becomes minimized and you say, why are you doing what you're doing? I don't know. I guess I won't do it anymore. 
So it's not so much about training. I think it's not, I agree with him somewhat. It's not so much about training. It's about falling in love with Jesus first and then get your training. You've got to decide whether or not you want to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and your strength. Because you can be a great intellectual, but you've got to bring everything to the table. So let's close with that. Close with the challenge of, am I going to refocus my life and my priorities on him? Because if you do, it will change the way you do Sunday school. It will change the way you do worship. It will change the way you do Monday through Saturday. Perspectives change. Attitudes change. Focus changes. I'm in the business of doing that. I want you to join me in that because I'm still a work in progress. There are things in my life that I need to work on because I want my kids to ask me that same question and I want to be prepared with the answer of how the Lord has been faithful to do it in my life. Let's pray together. God, may we be faithful to repent. so many things in our life that we've allowed to get in our way and called it Christian or called it okay. But you have sat there before us on your throne and have said, love me with all your heart, soul, and strength. And we've said, sure. But yet we've not done it by our will. We've not done it by our lives. You have warned us You've warned us in the book. You've warned us today. May we be renewed today. Renew our commitment today. May we repent today to follow after you. Thank you for your truth. May it not return void. Holy Spirit, have freedom to move now. May you move in our lives. May you speak to us clearly so that we may respond to your truth. I ask this in your mighty name.